Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's Flint briefing call on the consequences of Prigozhin's rebellion on Russia and the situation in Ukraine. Uh, I'm Karen Horwich. I'm a partner at Flint, and I'm joined today uh, in London by Sir Julian King, Flint specialist partner and former EU commissioner, um, as well as Alex White, uh, partner and head of our markets and investor advisory practice, and previously chief political analyst for JP Morgan. Um, and with this, we also have on the ground in Kiev, Flint senior advisor Bruno Massais, who was former Portuguese European Affairs Minister. So today we're going to examine the significance of what happened in Russia over the past few days. We'll consider what Prigozhin's rebellion means for Putin and Russia internally, as well as the implications of these events on the war in Ukraine. We'll also discuss how other countries have reacted to the crisis, particularly NATO countries and China. And finally, as ever, because it's a flint briefing call, we'll wrap up with what the key lessons are for corporates and investors. This is obviously a complex area with a multitude of views on how recent events will affect the future of Putin and Russia. As in the wider debate, there are different views within Flint as well. Through the course of today's discussion, we'll aim to tease some of these differences out, but we won't be providing a unified Flint house view. Um, so the call will last no longer than 30 minutes. As ever, we've muted the lines and won't take any questions during the call. Um, but if you do have any follow-ups or questions afterwards, we'd be very happy to help. So, Alex, let me turn to you first. Um, how would you qualify what happened over the past few days in Russia? And, and how big a challenge did the Prigozhin rebellion represent for Putin's grip on power? Thanks, Kieran. Well, look, I would describe this as being a serious crisis uh, for the state, but not a catastrophe. Um, let's talk about what it was and what it wasn't. It was a rebellion reflecting disagreements of interest between one interest group amongst many within the Russian system. It was not an attempted coup. It was not an attempt to violently replace the Putin system. Um, with another system or to change Russia's approach to the war in Ukraine. So it was very, very significant, um, primarily because it showed up publicly some of the real fissures that exist within the system, but it was not a direct, immediate threat to it over the last few days. Let, let's just talk a little bit about why. And I, I think why starts with an understanding of what the system is and how it fundamentally works. So the, the, the president's role, Putin's role within the Russian system is fundamentally as an arbiter of different interest groups. And there are lots of powerful different interest groups within the system, the military, the security services, economic interests, criminal enterprises linked to the state and regional governments and, and other external allies such as um, President Lukashenko. This is a disaggregated system. It's a system that is divided by region, by sector, by interest, and it needs somebody to sit at the centre as an arbiter. That's a strength and a weakness. Putin is not really susceptible to being knocked off in a single blow from a relatively minor actor. And Prigozhin, for all of his varied qualities is not a credible replacement for him because he's he's not a credible arbiter between the powerful different interest groups that make up the Putin system. 
Uh, very few people are. Very few people are a credible replacement for Putin, um, which, of course, is a strength for him personally and a weakness in the wider system. The other important point to note is that the Russian state operates in concentric circles, and Prigozhin individually uh, was not in Circle 1 or Circle 2. If we just look through the various different interest groups, the military, Shoigu, Harasimov, the security services, Bortnikov, Patrushev, the economy, Sechin and others. I mean, the, the, Brigojin is not a major figure in this universe. So this was not a serious attempt by a powerful individual like a Shoigu, for example, to come in, replace the president, have a coup, uh, start putting Russia on a different course. So it wasn't that. So what was it? Um, look, as I said at the top, it's effectively an, an armed rebellion that was a function of infighting between uh, different participants in one of the one of the factional interest groups. In this case, the the military um, and the private military companies. It was triggered, I suspect, because Prigozhin felt under personal threat. It, it's a classic dictator's handbook to use somebody for some dirty tasks, and when they have reached the end of their usefulness, remove them and um, chuck them out the window or some other, push them towards some other unpleasant end. And certainly, Prigozhin personally had enough very serious enemies, notably Shoigu within the system, who I think he felt were ready to do that to him. So this was a last wild throw of the dice by him. It was an attempt to get hold of Shoigu personally when he was in the Southern Military District headquarters in Rostov. Um, and then it was an appeal to Putin, personally. Um, and Prigozhin's last roll of the dice makes sense from that perspective, because obviously he has personal history with Putin, which many of you may well know, coming from the, the background in St. Petersburg. So it was an act of desperation. Um, and it's an act of desperation that is serious now, because it has shown up. Uh, the weaknesses within the system for everyone to see, both domestically and internationally. As such, it, it really does weaken Putin, and it weakens the entire Putin system. Um, it's a break in the rules of the game. Uh, this should not... The, the offer that Putin has made to the Russian people is that this sort of event really should not happen. It's redolent of the Yeltsin years, and Putin's strength and authority is that he's brought Russia on from that. So serious weakness. Uh, it invites the possibility of what happens next and whether a stronger figure might now fancy their chances in future. Um, I think it starts to invite awkward questions about succession in Russia, but it's not an immediate catastrophe uh, for Putin or the system. Thanks, Alex. So, so picking up on that point, obviously there's there's um, highlights about the weakness in the system, but Putin remains in the driving seat. What what will be his next move internally? And sort of looking ahead and picking up the final part of your answer, what what does this mean for his leadership in the medium to long term? Well, in the immediate term, there, there's there's two questions. I think there are two types of response. The first response is that there has now to be a demonstration of power. Uh, the state needs to demonstrate that it is vital, that it has grip, that it that it retains destructive capacity so that it can 
generate fear uh, amongst its enemies, both both internally and externally. So I would expect an uptick in violence, both within Russia, uh, as various scores are settled. And by the way, this is an opportunity for ambitious courtiers to um, to accuse others and competitors of being part of the rebellion. So I would expect quite a lot of personnel moves at different levels within the security services and the military, demonstrations of power domestically, demonstrations of power externally, particularly within Ukraine. You will have heard of the very unpleasant attack on Kramatorsk overnight. I would expect more of that. The state will lash out. That's the first response. The, the, the second response is a bigger question, invites a bigger question about where all of this is going. Um, when you have a shock like this, you effectively have the choice of whether you want to double down, retreat into your bunker in the existing system, or attempt some kind of perhaps too late version of reform. Um, there are much better potential leaders of the Russian military than Shoigu and Harasimov. And in fact, you know, the previous Russian defense minister, Serdyukov, uh, was a far better, and more effective leader of that department than Shoigu. But of course, you know, he's been asked to sack Shoigu and Harasimov. He can't do that because he's been asked by a rebel to do it. So it would be a sign of weakness. He's faced effectively with the classic dictator's dilemma. Does he want to reward loyalty or does he want to reward efficiency and effectiveness? Uh, if he wants to reward efficiency and effectiveness, this is an opportunity for a meaningful change in the cast of characters involved in the prosecution of the war. And it is, you know, theoretically possible that Russia could prosecute the war more successfully. Um, if he rewards loyalty, of course, he gets people that he feels like he can trust around him. And that, that includes Shoigu. So the dilemma really is, if you actually want to make progress in the war in Ukraine and have a shot at winning the war, uh, you need reform and you need more efficiency. Um, but if you stick with loyalty, you've got a better chance of retaining power in Russia. So what's more important? I, I suspect the latter. Thanks very much, Alex. Um, now, we had hoped to come to Bruno at this point, but um, I understand that we've we've lost him, unfortunately. So we will try and get him back. Um, and in the meantime, Julian, um, can I can I come over to you? So we will come back and talk about the Ukrainian perspective, um, hopefully when we get Bruno back. But we've we've seen the Western countries being very cautious on these Russian uh, internal developments um, and, and trying not to get involved. What's the perception of the situation um, from the EU or the, the US perspective? And, and we know that China's looking at this very closely as well. Will that affect the Russian-Chinese partnership? Uh, well, uh, good afternoon. I think it's fair to say that international observers uh, were looking at um, uh, what Alex has just described, the events over the weekend, with a mixture of nervousness and disquiet. Uh, but it hasn't fundamentally shifted uh, their underlying positions uh, on the war. I mean, China, you mentioned China. China were notably quiet uh, on Saturday. Uh, they emerged. Uh, on Sunday, uh, the Chinese and Russian foreign ministers met in a, a scheduled meeting. Uh, there were a number of statements made uh, reaffirming uh, the friendship and cooperation with Russia and specifically Putin. Interestingly, there were some 
commentators who uh, underline the importance of stability uh, in Russia. So I think China's calculation remains Russia is an ally in pushing back against uh, the U.S., uh, some cost to China's efforts to reach out to, to Europe in that. But on balance, uh, it, it's clear that they gain from the West collectively, focusing attention and resources on Russia and Ukraine. So they may privately reinforce messages uh, to Putin uh, and, and the Russian leadership around uh, stability, uh, for example, uh, not dramatically escalating using, for example, nuclear means. Uh, but publicly, uh, they will continue to take the line that they have an important relationship, they trade, uh, they uh, support uh, the regime in Russia, they don't arm them. Uh, as, you, as you said, uh, Western voices, US, NATO, the EU, uh, went out of their way over the weekend to underline that the events uh, were uh, an internal Russian matter. Uh, they didn't want to um, deflect attention in their direction, although uh, I noticed that the Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov is trying to do that. Uh, the, the Western voices limited themselves to reaffirming their strong support for Ukraine. Interestingly, a number of countries were meeting uh, over the weekend in Copenhagen, this was a Western initiative to reach out to the, the global South. It was at quite a senior level. I mean, um, uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor from, from the US, and the representatives from the G7 in Ukraine meeting with the likes of uh, Brazil, India, South Africa, Turkey, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, representatives of, of the global South. Now, they'd invited China, uh, but China didn't, didn't attend. Uh, this was... This was a discussion on uh, how to move forward diplomatically, how to resolve the conflict and build towards peace. And I think what's notable about it is that notwithstanding the weekend's events, the two groups basically uh, largely talked past each other. Uh, Ukraine, uh, with uh, uh, support from, from Western allies, pushed uh, for their approach. They pushed hard for a global peace summit. Uh, they'd like to see it as soon as possible on the basis of in, and in support of, of their peace plan, which is, of course, based on Russian withdrawal. The Global South, uh, vocally led by Brazil, uh, pushed, it, uh, from their perspective, for a ceasefire, i.e. without Russian withdrawal, and swift peace talks. So two different perspectives. They all agreed to keep talking, but as things stand, there's no obvious diplomatic route map to, to a settlement. And as the conflict continues, uh, unless and until there's some kind of tipping point, international efforts are likely, therefore, to focus on tackling some of the consequences, uh, uh, keeping the, the grain and fertilizer deal going, prisoner swaps, humanitarian access, that kind of thing, which can certainly help to build some kind of shared confidence. But frankly, on the diplomatic side, don't hold your breath, Karen. Thanks very much, Julian. Um, and very helpful to get that that wider perspective. Um, and I believe that we now do have Bruno back. So Bruno, I'll, I'll come back to you. Um, you're obviously on the ground in Kyiv um, and you were so when when these events unfolded and, and you've been speaking to people locally. What What is the perception um, in the Ukraine of, of how these events have unfolded and, and what's their analysis of the political situation in Russia? Hi, Kieran. I got disconnected. My apologies. The Wi-Fi got disconnected in the hotel. Hope you hope it's okay now. 
So I've been talking to many Ukrainian officials over the past few months. They always alerted me to the possibility that there would be serious turmoil within the Russian system. And that is something that you hear a lot in Ukraine, but not necessarily outside Ukraine, where the view is that the system would be uh, uh, rock solid. So I think they were vindicated in that respect. In fact, I met the intelligence chief last Friday, just three hours before Prigozhin started his movement towards Rostov. And he said goodbye with a very enigmatic sentence, uh, Putin has already lost control. It's very clear that Ukrainian intelligence knew about this. They interpreted in these terms. Uh, they see it as a direct consequence of the failures of the war. The situation with the army is increasingly unsustainable. The losses are now monumental, perhaps 200,000 soldiers uh, that have been killed or injured. There is no strategy. There is no clear way out. It's now widespread within the Russian side and system that a Russian victory is very unlikely. There is no confidence in Putin to deliver that victory. And that sense of weakness, of course, translates also to domestic politics. If a president is a political leader, is not capable of delivering victory in a war that he describes as existential for Russia, then perhaps he's also not strong enough to deliver uh, peace and stability at home. I think they were proven right about this, although, of course, much remains uncertain. They are more optimistic about the future than you, Alex, as one might expect. But what I think is relevant is that the macro consequences of the conflict are now, in my view, more to be expected from the impact on the, of the war on Russia than from the impact on Europe, which is, of course, what we discussed through most of 2022. This is a very significant shift that we have to keep monitoring. One last remark. It's very clear talking to government officials and intelligence officials that they are indeed very concerned about an increase of the brutality with which Russia is fighting the war. As a way, as Alex said, to demonstrate power and strength, there's a discussion ongoing here in uh, Kiev about the possibility of a nuclear attack on the nuclear power station in Zaporizhia, uh, attempting, as President Zelensky has said, to have a radiation leak that would make it much more difficult for the Ukrainian counteroffensive to continue moving. So this is a matter of great concern here that I think uh, also explains why the intelligence chief uh, last week uh, was uh, both talking about potential turmoil in Russia and alerting everyone to the dangers of a nuclear attack on the Zaporizhia power station. Thanks, Bruno. And and can we can we talk a bit more then specifically um, about the war itself? And and you, you've mentioned the counteroffensive and, and the position of Russia. So what does this all mean for the military se- um, military situation? And and do these events have a direct impact on what's going on on the ground and and how that counteroffensive is is going? Mm-hmm. Direct impact. Perhaps, perhaps not, because you remember about a month ago, the Wagner Group actually withdrew from the front, and they were 20 kilometers from the front. They declared victory in Bakhmut and withdrew. The indirect impact, I think, is enormous. And in fact, the offensive gained speed in the last three days uh, since the turmoil started in Russia. I am told by government officials that there are important successes in the offensive that have not yet been publicized for obvious security reasons. There seemed to be significant progress in two or three areas of the front, in Donetsk, in Kherson, and also, perhaps surprisingly, in Bakhmut. Uh, Just this afternoon, there seems to be some announcements of progress in Bakhmut. 
On the other hand, I think we know uh, the Russian system is so fragile that even Ukraine's difficulties now have to be measured against the possibility that Russia will start to unravel if there are significant military victories during the offensive. What Ukrainian officials have always told me is that the goal is ultimately to retake one of the major cities that are under occupation, and that would be Lugansk, Donetsk, or perhaps even Mariupol, and then to see what the impact inside Russia would be. And now in retrospect, knowing what happened with Prigozhin, we can perhaps expect that the impact would be uh, difficult to measure, but certainly something that Ukrainians are counting on. They are counting on this double dynamic, both inside Ukraine and in Russia. Now, the casualties are, in fact, very high. I talked to a good friend yesterday. This is anecdotal, but he is going out to two funerals a week of friends or friends of friends. Uh, everyone I talk to seems to believe that the casualties are now higher than during the worst weeks of the Bakhmut battle. So Ukraine needs to have some results before the end of the summer. It will become increasingly difficult to sustain these levels of, of casualties. Both sides are struggling, but I think the initiative is now with Ukraine. And the political unity is obviously much stronger in Ukraine than in Russia. I went to the Kiev Book Fair, which took place over the weekend, and it was quite interesting to be there and to witness how President Zelensky arrived and was received like a rock star. And the leader of the opposition, former President Poroshenko, arrived and he was received like a rock star by the crowd, a very large crowd. Finally, Foreign Minister Kuleva arrived and he was received in the same way. So I think that's a good indication of how united the country is and how hopeful about the offensive. Thank you very much, Bruno. Um, so, Alex, finally, coming back to you to help us to wrap up. Um, we've heard the the overview of, of what happened and perspectives of how it's being interpreted um, within Ukraine and also more broadly by the international community. What what are the main lessons that we should take from a business perspective and, and what should corporates and investors be watching for in the coming weeks and months? Thanks, Karen. Well, look, I mean, as we've been discussing, this is a really important moment, um, and it's important because it can perhaps give us a clue as to where, what, what happens over the next few weeks or, or month or so will give us a bit of a clue as to whether uh, the conflict in Ukraine becomes a frozen conflict or whether one side and potentially the Ukrainians feel like they can reach a point where they can punch hard enough that the other side feels that they... that, that, that that they can't sustain the, the war effort. And that's really, you know, that that's a very, very big question. And I don't think any of us on the call quite have the answer. There will be lots of different perspectives. Um, the points to watch are those on the ground, which Bruno mentioned. I mean, I would particularly say looking at Kherson, which is uh, the gateway to Crimea, the North Crimea Canal. That whole area is incredibly strategically important. And if the Russians, if the Ukrainians make progress there, that's really very significant indeed. But but the bigger question is morale on the home front in, in Moscow um, and whether the elite, broadly speaking, feels that it has the stomach to continue the fight. And we will find that out, I think, over the next few weeks, months, as I say. So what does it mean for for markets and uh, for those of us thinking of deploying capital. Really, I, I think the main point to make is that there is some pretty significant upside potential out there 
if this does, if we do get that sort of surprise um, set of developments. And all of that felt very, very unlikely a few weeks ago, and it feels somewhat more likely now. So watch this space. Great. Well, thank you very much, Alex, um, and also to Julian and Bruno. We're going to leave it there for now, but our Flint geopolitical team um, will continue to follow events very closely um, and update you on developments in Russia and Ukraine and their implications. Um, as ever, if you do have any questions on any of the things that we've talked about today or would like to dig deeper into any of the issues, please get in touch and we're very happy to organise a follow-up. Um, otherwise, have a good afternoon and goodbye. Bye.